Nobody goes through, I mean, an intense combat experience, especially 15 months, uh, which was the length of that deployment. Yeah, you don't come away from that unaffected. It is Thanksgiving week, and welcome to episode 107 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with retired U.S. Army Colonel Chris Kalenda. Chris is the founder of the Strategic Leaders Academy, which helps people lead as their best selves and build great teams that take their business to new heights. He holds a doctorate in war studies from King's College, London. In 2007 and 2008, he led 800 paratroopers in eastern Afghanistan. Their unit seems to be the only one in the 20-year history of the war to have convinced a big insurgent group to switch sides. He served as a trusted advisor to three four-star generals in Afghanistan and two secretaries of defense. From 2010 to 2013, he was the secretary of Defense's personal representative in the talks with the Taliban. He is the author of three books. First, Leadership, The Warrior's Art, which has become a classic for military leaders. Second, The Counterinsurgency Challenge. And third, for discussion today, Zero-Sum Victory, What We're Getting Wrong About War, which came out last month. Colonel Kalinda, thanks a lot for being on the podcast with us this week. It's delightful to be with you, Les. Thank you. So we're here to talk in part about your book, Zero-Sum Victory, what we're getting wrong about war. Uh, and I'd like, uh, there it is, uh, for those of you who are on the YouTube video. And what I'd like for you to do as kind of the start of the conversation is talk about the book, your experiences, and, and why you wrote this particular book. Les, I really appreciate you having me on this program and giving me the opportunity to talk about, about zero-sum victory and the why behind it. Um, and, I mean, fiascos are not okay. And when you look at our track record in recent conflicts dating since really Vietnam. I mean, we seem to have the reverse Midas touch. So Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen. I mean, there's a consistent theme of fiascos, unintended consequences, um, things getting worse, and the inability to achieve our aims um, when confronting ragtag militant groups. And of course, we all saw the meltdown in Afghanistan in August where an investment of 20 years, 2,300, over 2,300 service members killed to include six of my own soldiers, uh, tens of thousands wounded, $2 trillion of American taxpayer money, all to watch this thing disintegrate over, you know, almost immediately. I mean, overnight, it's it's not right. And um, and what's really disturbing to me on top of all of that is that there is no serious discussion in the United States about national security reform. You know, what do we learn from these conflicts? How do we fix this? How do we stop the unforced errors um, and own goals that are creating these, you know, these fiascos? So zero sum victory is you know, I hope will be something that jumpstarts a conversation about how we reform our national security decision-making, our approach to these sort of conflicts, you know, so that we reduce the likelihood of more unmitigated disasters in the future. One of the things you talk about in the book uh, are the metrics that we use to measure success. Can you, can you talk about your thinking behind that? Well, one of the challenges that when we go into these 
Wars is, um, and, and uh, my mentor, Michelle Flournoy, put it really, really well. Um, and, I, and I've got this quote in the, in the book where, you know, where we're talking about Afghanistan and decision making. And, and I, you know, I'd asked about, you know, hey, was a history of, um, you know, were there any longitudinal studies or historical looks at counterinsurgencies and, you know, what made them successful, what made them not? And, and, and her quote directly was, history did not have a seat at the table. Um, and, and so one of the challenges that we, that we face is, uh, we don't look at the critical factors that show whether, uh, um, you know, whether you've got the prospects for a, a zero sum decisive victory. And I'm going to use my little drawing board, but also describe this to the, uh, audiences as, as I'm going through it. So let me share a screen real quick. Um, so in, in any insurgency, there have been a few longitudinal studies done by Rand and some other organizations. And um, there's really two critical factors that emerge that seem to be determinative in terms of whether you can get a decisive victory in an insurgency. And so um, simple, uh, simple square, simple quad chart. So on the top is... Um, is the insurgency sustainable? So the north-south axis, or yeah, um, is is the insurgency sustainable? And it's either a yes uh, or it's a no. Now, it, according to these longitudinal studies, an insurgency that has durable internal support, so they can field a team in the country, and has external sanctuary, has been successful every single time since at least since the second world war so they've never been decisively defeated um they've always achieved in some ways um critical aims um on the other side is um host nation legitimacy so is the host nation considered by its population to be uh legitimate and the best way to measure that is are they able to re retake and retain contested or um, terror, you know, populations that are under insurgent control? So if they can, if they can do that, then they, you know, they're winning the battle of legitimacy. If they can't do that, then they're losing the battle of legitimacy in certain areas of the country. Again, since the Second World War, a, a host nation government that has been unable to retake and retain territory uh, that is either contested or under the control of the insurgency has been unable to win a decisive victory every single time. So um, we'll do, let's do a, you know, also a yes, no. So the only scenario in which you are going to get a decisive military victory, you know, this zero sum victory, um, where the enemy surrenders and they relinquish all of their goals and we gain everything we want is if you have an insurgency that's not sustainable and a host nation government that is considered legitimate. So this is the only place where you're going to get a decisive victory. Um, in every other scenario, according to the longitudinal studies, if one or both of the variables are pointing in the wrong direction, then you are not going to get a decisive 
victory. You were either going to have to have a negotiated outcome or some sort of transition. Now, the challenge is that because history doesn't have a seat at the table, we're not looking at this situation analytically. And and so uh, we wind up sustaining or persisting with these military-centric strategies that have zero probabilities of success. So one of the things that we need to measure is, you know, not how many civil servants we crank out and not how many soldiers we can uh, produce with the host nation or how many elections they have. These are the two critical things. Um, and, and if one or more of those variables is turning south, then you need to quickly pivot your strategy towards a different war termination outcome. Otherwise, you're going, you know, you're going to spiral into these quagmires. Since we're a, a nerdy foreign policy podcast, let's let's talk about definitions. You talk about host nation legitimacy. How do you as a military strategist or foreign policy analyst or let's uh, say advisor to a member of Congress or a president uh, define that term? How do you get to to truth on host nation legitimacy, and for that matter, uh, sustainability of of an insurgency? How do you get the right answer to those questions? You know, each situation is going to be a bit unique. In broad brush, um, a host nation government is considered legitimacy in the eyes of its people. Um, and, and people are going to vote with behaviors. We have to be very careful about polling in uh, conflict zones. We instead need to look primarily at behaviors. And so in an insurgency, if you've got a situation where there's an insurgency, there are populations that are under insurgent control. There are populations that are contested between the government and the insurgency. So we need to look at government performance in those areas. Are they able to take, seize control of contested areas? Are they able to seize control of insurgent controlled areas? And then do they retain that control? Or is it like whack-a-mole, um, you know, where they go in and they go out, they go in and go out, um, you know, like these, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, night raids and stuff. Now, if they're able to go into these areas and, and, and take control and slowly and, you know, more and more of the country and more and more where the insurgency had, um, you know, had control, then... You've got a pretty good indicator that the host nation government is winning the battle of legitimacy in those areas. In terms of insurgent sustainability, there are two key measures. The first one is, do they have external sanctuary? If they've got external sanctuary in which they can plan, uh, prepare, organize logistics, uh, have some sort of uh, you know safe place to do all of that, then um, that is of vital importance to the survival of an insurgency. Um, but that is not sufficient. What they also need to have are people indig- within the population that are willing to fight on their behalf, you know, because they've got to be able to field a team in the country. Uh, it's interesting, and, and I, I believe I've got this data point in Zero Sum Victory, where uh, when uh, ISAF in Afghanistan did studies on where the insurgents come from, um, I think it was something like 90% of the people that they had captured on the battlefield 
insurgents they captured on the battlefield or killed on the battlefield uh, came from uh, were operating within 10 kilometers of their home village. So that suggests, you know, pretty clear evidence that in this case, the Taliban was able to field an internal team. So these are Afghan Afghans residing in Afghanistan, willing to fight against their own government. Let's pull back from Afghanistan and talk about the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Uh, in 2014, showed up suddenly on the scene, took hmm. territory, massive amounts of territory in both Iraq and Syria, arguably an insurgency, notably one that relied on foreign fighters. Our strategy, I, you know, as a outside observer would say, fairly successful. Uh, it took it took a long time. It was not a massive. We didn't send massive amounts of U.S. troops to Iraq or Syria. It was pretty light footprint. We relied on local actors. Is that a, an example of a well-done counterinsurgency campaign? Would that meet your your criteria? Um, so it's it was better. Um, so and but recall how we got to ISIS, which is we had this this uh, effort in Iraq uh, that had from the Jump Street alienated the Sunni population. You know, we began this sort of downward spiral in Iraq that was temporarily arrested by the surge and um, and the cooperation with you know with the uh, with the Sunnis who had decided that they'd haven't had enough of al-Qaeda in Iraq um, and so cooperated with us weren't necessarily cooperating with the Af- or the Iraqi government but they weren't attacking it as we began to draw down however Maliki um, who was never really thrilled with the the whole Sons of Iraq, um, you know, and the Awakening movement began as as the pressure, you know, as as our um, sort of oversight reduced. Maliki began his sort of reconstituting his uh, his persecution campaign, if you will, against the Sunnis, and um, and you know we didn't do anything. To stop it. In fact, in, in some ways, unwittingly enabled it. And so the result is, you know, we leave by, you know, in December 2011, Maliki's on this campaign of repression, and that's when you get Islamic State um, rising up. Now, the, um, and taking a significant amount of territory. Now, their biggest mistake was, um, was transforming from an insurgency into a conventional force. And declaring control of territory, um, and and so that denied them a lot of the advantages of being an insurgency, and instead made them very very targetable uh, by you know by us. Uh, the Iraqi government were able to mobilize the Shia militias, um, you know, and gain Iranian support for that, and those were the ones who primarily took the fight to the Islamic State, at least in Iraq, uh, because the the army had really begun to collapse. And it's possible there's another reckoning coming in Iraq for the consequences of of that fight as well. Exactly. So, I mean, so we find ourselves, I mean, just sort of dialing dialing back a bit. If I could go back to my, I'm going to go back to my uh, drawing board here. So, you know, there's consistent themes when we look at Iraq, when we look at Vietnam, we look at Afghanistan and the problems um, is, 
you know, we start off having a pretty good idea. So um, this square is start point. So we have a pretty good idea of the situation in which we are beginning, um, which we're starting the conflict. We have also a pretty good idea of what success looks like. So um, S stands for success, that square, and um, a square below it stands for failure. So we understand what success looks like. No um, Iraqi, you know, no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, Iraq, not a terror, you know, threat as a terror safe haven. Uh, Afghanistan, you know, not a host to Al-Qaeda, which is planning and conducting attacks against the West, etc. Um, you know, failure being the opposites of those. Now, between start point and, you know, end points, either success or failure, you have got... Um, this big cloud, um, you know, which you might call the fog of war. In fact, it's exactly what Clausewitz talked about in terms of the fog of war, uncertainty, complexity, chaos, etc. And um, and so we try to um, navigate that fog, chart a path through that fog uh, by creating these milestones, right? So we'll plan. We, use a planning effort to create these milestones. It could be um, a constitution, uh, re, uh, const you know, creating a new security force, having elections, uh, building X number of roads, etc. So we, we arrange these milestones in a sort of linear path that we think is going to take us to a successful outcome. Um, so we begin the war with a very military-centric effort. And as we enter the war, um, all of the other actors, the host nation government, the insurgency, um, the population, neighbors and allies, um, react to our, um, you know, our, the war. And they form these critical factors that I described earlier. Is the host nation legitimate? Is the insurgency sustainable? And sadly, in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, those one or more of those variables, um, in fact, both of them in all three cases, be, turn south. So what happens is you begin to get this um, drift towards failure. And we have a hard time recognizing the drift towards failure because of things like cognitive bias, bureaucratic silos, and since we have a nerdy audience here, principal agent problems with the host nation. Or to simplify, I'll just call it corruption. And the longer these drag on and take on a sort of hypnotic rhythm, the harder it is to recover. And if across the bottom we have time, um, over time we pay penalties in public support as things drift downward. And the longer it takes to try to change this trajectory, the harder it becomes. And, and so like we saw in Afghanistan, um, we recognize way too late that things are in a, in a downward spiral we try to uh, get a negotiated outcome, and we wind up with a, an agreement with the Taliban in this case, 
in which you have we trade troop presence for promises of good behavior against terrorism. And then, you know, we, we saw we saw the effect. So the key, one of the keys to national security reform is recognizing these early pivot points, having a language to recognizing these early pivot points and shifting very quickly to different war termination outcomes rather than persisting in you know, this belief in a decisive victory that's never uh, going to happen. Chris, let's let, let me push on that a little bit on national security reform and, and kind of pivoting to a new uh, end point. And once you've launched the conflict, would it, just as a uh, intellectual question, would it not be even better before you decide to engage to have a more modest goal at the get-go, knowing that the track record of, particularly in conflict with insurgencies, the record is uh, heavily weighted in favor of insurgents. Yeah, one of the things that we're missing in strategy, you know, we, we, we tend to think of strategy in terms of ends, ways, and means. So what are the goals that we're trying to achieve? What are the ways in which we're going to go about achieving them, military efforts, political, economic, etc. And then what are the what are the means necessary to make all that happen? Now, what we don't discuss is um, outcome, war termination outcome. And this becomes a big problem because we have a mental model in America of zero sum decisive victory. Our mental image of how wars must end is what we, you know, holdovers from World War II, um, where surrender ceremony on the battleship Missouri or whatever, unconditional surrender. I mean, all of these are sort of analogous terms to zero sum uh, decisive victory. And that's how we that's our mental image for how wars must end. Um, And so we tend to go into these wars thinking that we are going to achieve you know, the only right outcome, the only outcome that's going to meet our interest is a zero-sum decisive victory. And, of course, when the variables are in the wrong direction, you're never going to achieve it. And you could be at it for 20 years and $2 trillion. You're still not going to achieve it. So we need to, um, as a part of our strategy, and I write about this in Zero-Sum Victory, we need to talk about um, ends, but then we also need to talk about you know what are the war termination outcomes you know that that's reasonable. Are we going for a, a zero sum decisive victory? Okay, what are the conditions in which that is going to be possible? Um, what might a strategy towards a negotiated outcome that meets those interests? What might that look like? Um, and what are the ways and means associated with that strategy? Um, or you can also theoretically, uh, you know, do a transition, right, where you are helping the host nation stand up. And, um, and then eventually, as we tried to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, as Bush said, you know, as they stand up, we stand down. Now, that I don't believe that there's been a a positive example of transition since the Second World War. But nonetheless, you know, it it works in theory. We're just not sure in practice. Um, But if we don't understand the different ways that wars can end successfully, then we are likely to stay on this zero-sum victory mentality 
and thus um, you know not recognize the pivot points and continue to persist in a losing strategy when there are other uh, options available to achieve our core interests, even though, even though it might not be as satisfying as unconditional surrender. Chris, let's talk about your your audience for this book, because I think the obviously the, the topics you're mentioning here and the ideas and the way you want to challenge some of the decisions that have been made by our country, pretty profound. But were and but it occurs to me a lot of these decisions originate with civilian politicians right we have a system and it's we're a democracy we elect a president we elect a congress congress has the right to declare war or authorize use of military force in the current parlance president's the commander in chief a lot of the tactical decisions on the ground of course are necessarily made by military leadership but the big question of whether to enter a conflict and then whether to end a conflict almost always rests with civilian, political, elected person. Who are you writing for? Are you writing for both of those groups? Are you writing for on the military side? Are you are you trying to get to the military advisors of civilian decision makers? How do you imagine this breaking through into big picture decision making? Yeah, it's 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 for Nash. It's written for national security uh, professionals and those with an interest in national security. So it's it is not a it and it's written precisely for that audience. Um, so you're not going to get a bunch of geek speak and nerd speak. Um, it's written in fairly plain language, you know, so that people can read this and say, okay, I get exactly what's going on here and I have some really good ideas of things we need to change. So, and since most of our national security decisions are made by civilians within the national security, you know, our national security um, community, um, they're the ones that really need, need this. And, um, and I think for a couple of reasons. The first one is that there's a difference between war fighting and war waging. And it's a difference that we have not come to grips with. So war fighting is what the military does. I did war fighting on the ground in Kunar and Nuristan. ISAF or MNFI did war fighting. You know, it's the use of military force against an enemy. Governments, on the other hand, do war waging. And so war waging includes not just the military, but also the diplomat, diplomatic and political and economic and intelligence. All of those other instruments of national power um, go into war waging. Our policy and strategy need to be focused on war waging and not just simply war fighting. So this is a key element of these kind of wars that we are getting uh, getting wrong. So that's one major reform that we need to make is recognizing the difference between war fighting and war waging and creating a set of terms and concepts for war waging. One of the things I noticed time and again in whether I was at, uh, at the four star headquarters in ISAF or at the Pentagon, you know, in the White House Situation Room debating different points of strategy is we tend to talk past one another. 
in these different departments. So, you know, the Department of Defense, of course, has all of this war fighting doctrine and has certain terms and concepts that it uses, um, you know, to be able to communicate clearly. But that's not shared. There, there's, there's no analog for that, or that's not shared, the state and the intel communities and other elements of, of uh, you know, of national power. And so you constantly have this situation where people are talking past one another in these false cognates, and it's damaging communication. It's undermining the ability to have intelligent policy and strategy. A second place and an implication of this is this is going to shock your audience. Um, and I can't wait to see your face when we say this, when I say this. There is nobody in charge of our wars. We have nobody in charge of our wars. And this is part of the reason why they're turning into these fiascos. Um, so let me show you what's happening and, um, and then how to fix it. So what happens is wait for my, my doodad to pop up. Okay. So uh, we have the president of the United States. The commander in chief, and and uh, you know you mentioned earlier, and then within um, the national security architecture, you've got you know the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, uh, you've got maybe USAID that, of course, technically works for state, but often operates as you know independently in many ways. You've got your intel agencies, and they've got different flavors of those. And when we go to war in these small wars. We deploy in bureaucratic silos into the conflict zone. So state has its you know, silo in the embassy. Maybe you have a special representative for something that does the diplomatic work. Uh, defense has its silo in terms of the military command. Often there are different silos within the military on the ground in theater in a place. Let's let's just say let's just say Afghanistan. Um, you know, USAID is in its own silo with its representatives on the ground. So, you know, you've got for state, you've got embassy for defense. You've got your four star headquarters and maybe other flavors. You've got your aid workers. You've got your different, um, you know, intel communities as well. There is nobody on the ground in Afghanistan or wherever Iraq, Vietnam in charge of the totality of U.S. efforts. The embassy is doing its own thing. The military is doing its own thing. So is the aid. So are the intel communities. Um, there's nobody in charge. There's nobody that the president of the United States can point to and say, you are responsible for and accountable for achieving the national aims, and I'm giving you the authorities over all U.S. elements of national power in country to do that. So it would be like, imagine the Ford Motor Company, which has plants all over the world. And instead of having plant managers at each plant, you had um, people, you know, leaders in the plants reporting directly to bureaucrats in Detroit. So the, you know, you had a director of logistics that reported directly to the, um, you know, the chief of operations in Detroit. You had the IT person reporting directly to Detroit. You had the logistical person reporting directly to Detroit. I mean, imagine the chaos um, of, of this sort of scenario. And yet that's what we do. 
It's like, um, and this is part of the reason why we have some of the most capable diplomats and soldiers and aid workers and intel um, professionals in the world, but they can't operate together as a team. It's like Team USA 2004 that kept losing basketball games, even though they had the most talented players. So what we need to do uh, as a part of this reform is change the way we do things um, by getting somebody in charge on the ground. So in this case, you'd have the president, you have the national security advisors, but on the ground, you would have a, um, we'll just call this person a commander, could be a civilian, could be military, but a presidentially appointed person that is responsible and accountable for coordinating and managing all of the U.S. efforts in theater. And everybody reports to that person who then is accountable to the president for achieving results. It's hard to believe that that's not true right now. Isn't it, though? I mean, it's I mean, when you when you just sort of think about it and think you can't run a business that way. Um, you can't run a you can't run an athletic team. That, imagine the National Football League with no coaches. Or you know? the, the offensive line coaches programming a play and the running back coach has no idea what it is. I mean, it's just not going to work very well. That's exactly right. And so what happens is everybody's optimizing in their silo, but the whole is less than the sum of its parts because it's not coming together as a team. And where a lot of these strategic risks come into play, failure to recognize the critical factors, um, you know, whether point north and south, um, the um, you know c- cognitive bias, the uh, principal agent problems as host nations turn into kleptocracies. Um, all of these things are creating strategic threats, but nobody is is in charge of managing them. It's it's like the um, an equivalent to the two thousand and eight financial crisis. You know where you had all of these people looking at different risks within certain silos, but nobody looking at the big picture. And because nobody's looking at the big picture, they're not seeing how the dominoes are starting to line up. Um, and then in 2008, we had the big financial crisis. Um, in 2014, we had you know this sort of blitz by the Islamic State. In 2021, we had the meltdown in Afghanistan. So let's shift a little bit to the the human cost of these fiascos. And and if you don't, if you're willing to share, can you can you talk to us about your experience with men on the ground in Afghanistan and this fallen hero uh, honor ride that you're planning? Uh, absolutely. I, I appreciate you asking me about that, Les. Um, so. Yeah, I commanded about 800 paratroopers in eastern Afghanistan in 2007 through 8. Uh, you can read, uh, well, Jake Tapper's book, The Outpost. Um, uh, the middle part of that book is is about our unit. And, I mean, they accomplished some extraordinary things that had not been achieved, well, had not been repeated in the 20-year history of the war, which includes getting a, a large insurgent group to essentially switch sides. Um, but all of that comes at a cost. And uh, six of my soldiers were killed in action in Afghanistan. They, you know, six, uh, you know, six soldiers who died um, following my orders, you know, doing the things that I asked them to do. And, you know, you um, nobody goes through 
I mean, an intense combat experience, especially 15 months, uh, which was the length of that deployment. You know, you don't come away from that unaffected. And, um, you know, you've got people with, um, you know, wounds seen and unseen. Um, and then, you know, we all think about our, uh, you know, uh, the, the folks that we lost. And, and so I've always wanted to do something special to commemorate their service and, uh, and sacrifice. Um, and, and so, you know, I thought uh, a couple of years ago, I thought, you know what I want to do? I want to pedal a bike to visit each of their grave sites. And, um, and uh, that, that, that bike ride is about 1,700 miles. And, and so the, the six soldiers, um, uh, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll start from west to east. Uh, so Private First Class Chris Pfeiffer was um, in a fighting position at a place called Camp Keating when an insurgent attack occurred. A bullet penetrates his, uh, his chest cavity, just, just misses his body armor by centimeters. Um, and, and, uh, the docks at Camp Keating get Chris stabilized, flies him, you know, eventually, you know, they fly into my outpost, my main outpost. Um, and, and the docks, um, I mean, Chris, the, the bullet had nicked Chris's liver. And so the, the doctors were, uh, you know, I mean, they are, they're in there for hours trying to stabilize him. They can't, they can't do it. Chris is losing blood and eventually the docks run out of blood bags. Um, and, and so we asked for everybody of O type blood, you know, to, you know, willing, who's willing to do so to give blood. And I swear every soldier on that outpost of O type blood lined up, gave blood. It gave Chris the fighting chance he needed to, um, you know, to get stabilized. And eventually he gets, he, um, is, um, evacuated to San Antonio and he, he's fighting for his life for a month. Uh, at San Antonio, he's joined by his wife, Karen, who is nine months pregnant, uh, and by his parents. And Chris fights and fights. And, and finally, um, on September 25th of 2007, he, uh, he dies of wounds. Karen goes into labor the next day. And a day after that, their daughter Peyton is born. So she just turned 14 years old. Adrian Hike is buried in a place called Carroll, Iowa. Uh, Adrian was the first soldier I ever pinned a combat medal on. Uh, he had done a lot of uh, heavy fighting in Iraq. And as I mentioned before, nobody goes through that without, you know, without having an effect on them. And that heavy fighting had an effect on Adrian. Um, I mean, incredible, extraordinary soldier. Um, and one of the people, you know, when I looked at, like, who are my most competent non-commissioned officers? I mean, Adrian Hike is, like, in the top five in an 800-person unit. Um, but Adrian, um, he had gotten in trouble with the bottle. That was one of his coping mechanisms. And, um, and it got him into trouble. And so he eventually, you know, eventually had to bust him down to private. Um, Adrian, to his credit... Gets the gets the support he needs to deal with um, you know his post traumatic stress, and he fights his way back to sergeant. Um, and it's like I, it's hard to be more proud of a soldier than you know when you see this happening, and um, you know everybody's cheering for him, and he becomes the gunner uh, for his commander's Humvee. And on November twelfth of two thousand seven, uh, his Humvee strikes a, a roadside bomb. And Adrian's killed killed instantly. Um, in Illinois is where Jacob Lowell is buried. 
So Jacob Lowell was a also a gunner on a Humvee. And on June 2nd of 2007, his patrol comes under attack. And Jacob gets shot in the leg. But he doesn't stay down. He gets back up on his gun and continues engaging the enemy despite, despite this wound. Um, and because of his reaction, he's able to keep his fellow paratroopers alive. Um, and then he was um, shot again, and this time um, fatally. Uh, I'll continue the ride to, uh, to Hall, Indiana, where Ryan Fritchie is buried. So Ryan Fritchie is a staff sergeant, uh, infantryman, and he was on the squadron staff for about a year. Uh, and all he, just everybody loved Ryan. Uh, competent what he did, great, great person. And he, uh, all he wanted to do was to lead a squad in combat. So Ryan gets his wish in mid-July of 2007. And he is leading his squad in on a patrol when we run into the biggest firefight we had in the 15-month uh, deployment. And Ryan is leading his squad to get into a dominant position on the high ground to engage the enemy. And in that process, he is he's shot. Um, David Boris is buried in Minersville, Pennsylvania. So Captain Dave Boris, uh, West Point graduate. Dave was like a little brother to me. Uh, he's the person I knew the longest in the unit. And I first met him in, uh, geez, I think uh, late 2003, early 2004. Um, and you know, Dave's everything you, you, when you think about it, what you want in an army officer. I mean, Dave Boris is like the, you know, he's like the, the exemplar of all of that. Um, extraordinary character, competence, um, and you know, was able to connect with, you know, his subordinates, with his peers, you know, with his, with his leaders and, um, and his soldiers loved him. And, uh, you know, Dave, November 12th, 2007 is on that same patrol with Adrian, the same vehicle. Um, you know, when his vehicle strikes an improvised, um, explosive device and Dave was killed instantly. And then the ride will end in Arlington National Cemetery where Tom Bostick is buried. Tom, uh, also a troop commander up at a place called Camp Keating. And Tom was the best combat leader I ever met. He, I mean, just hearing him in action, I mean, coordinating his his units, coordinating air and artillery strikes. I mean, it's, I mean, it was like poetry. I mean, he's just so talented um, at, at war fighting. And um, I remember this is July 27th of 2007, and, you know, the, this massive firefight erupts. And um, Tom is, is, I mean, he's doing his job, and, and he's doing it masterfully. Yeah, I'm hearing everything he's saying on the radio because I'm just a few miles away on a different um, ridge line. And then the, the firefight dies down after about four hours. And I remember talking to Tom on the radio uh, he gives me this great update, tells me what they're getting ready to, you know, what they face, what they're getting ready to do next. And, and, you know, there's quiet for like 90 minutes. And, and that's when I heard it. And I can still hear it just as I'm speaking with you today. So it's just big boom, you know, echoes down the mountain valley. And the firefight renews with even greater intensity. Um, and I hear a transmission come across the radio that says the CP's been hit. Now, CP meant command post, which meant Tom was under direct fire. 
So, you know, I gave it a while because I'm not trying to gonna bug him while he's fighting for his life. And uh, so then after a while, I tried to talk to him. You know, Bulldog 6 is the Sabre 6. And there's no answer. Bulldog 6 is Sabre 6. Silence. Bulldog 6 is Sabre 6. And, you know, what I heard next on the one level made me very proud. Uh, Tom Sargent and his lieutenants are coordinating with one another, bringing in air and artillery strikes, taking the fight to the enemy, just like Tom taught him how to do. On another level, I, I knew. And what happened was when the firefight picks back up again, uh, Tom and his command post, you know, about five, him and about five other soldiers are, are you know, I mean, face intense fire. Tom tells his soldiers as command post to move to um, a better vantage point where they can take the fight to the enemy. Um, and while they're doing that, Tom is counterattacking this overwhelming enemy force um, by fire. And uh, the Boma herd was the rocket propelled grenade that killed him. Uh, Tom was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest medal for valor uh, for his actions. Um, so that's the uh, that's the fallen hero on a ride. Uh, so here's a here's a picture of it. Um, you should be able to see. So starting in Spalding, Nebraska, and working our way for about 1,700 miles to Arlington National Cemetery. I'm going to start it on September 25th of of uh, 2022, which is the 15th anniversary of Chris dying of wounds, and, and uh, at Tom Bostick's grave in Arlington, um, and and uh, I'm raising funds for a scholarship endowment in their names. So, you know, an easy way to support that endowment is, uh, you know, through this uh, GoFundMe website. Uh, so if you type in Fallen Hero on a ride, GoFundMe, you'll see it. Um, and if you're all, all are able to, you know, to post this in, uh, you know, on the, you know, on the video and in the podcast, that would be, that would be really, really awesome. Uh, Chris, we will absolutely do that. Thank you for sharing uh, that incredible story. Thanks. Uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving week that this podcast is going to go up and I can't think of something Americans should be more thankful for than your service, the service of your fellow soldiers, particularly the fallen soldiers. Uh, and, and so thank you for telling that story. Amazing idea to do this, this honor ride. And we're thrilled to be supportive in any way. Uh, for your efforts. So we, we really appreciate that. Um, uh, Chris, we're, we're out of time. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for talking about your, your book, your story, the story of uh, your fellow soldiers. Uh, this was, this was really instructive. And I think, and I hope in part uh, that we can contribute to elevating national security reform as a uh, much more important topic for our national conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Les. I really appreciate you having me on your program. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Bridget Neff Hickman for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm -hmm.